Dr. Catherine Hales is a professor at Duke University, best known as a literary critic and as an author of a number of books, uh, most notably How We Became Post-Human. And today I'm lucky enough to catch up with Dr. Hales here in the Tech Emergence podcast where we speak about the difference between consciousness and cognition and which kinds of creatures uh, are capable of which and which kinds of technologies may facilitate which. We speak a lot about Dr. Hale's version or our vision of what she refers to as an assemblage of human and technology and how she sees the role of technology in the future, uh, maybe having more or less of an impact on our own connectedness as conscious beings and, uh, and human beings. So today we speak a lot about, again, the, the distinction between what is thought versus what is consciousness and how does that play out into our own post-human future. So without further ado, we'll get directly into the episode. So Catherine, before we get into the meat and potatoes of, of how you see this, this interaction between humans and, and technology on kind of the grander scale uh, moving forward, I'm interested in, in sort of the way that you define a human technical assemblage. Assemblage is a word that has become popular in cultural theory and cultural discourses uh, because it plays a very central role in um, Gilles Deleuze's uh, Thousand Plateaus. Hmm. And it, he uses a French word, agentement, but it's usually been translated into English as assemblage. And so it's kind of a term that's taken cultural theory by storm. And it has some advantages as a term because it implies some kind of connection but not a connection so tight that you couldn't lose parts or you couldn't add parts. So it seems to me very well suited as a term to describe what's happening with uh, traffic patterns when traffic signals are controlled by intelligent algorithms that can self-evolve. Mm -hmm. So you've got drivers coming onto the streets, their presence is being registered by this computerized system called ATSAC, um, Automobile uh, Automated uh, Travel and surveillance, traffic and surveillance system in Los Angeles. So you're losing parts, you're adding parts, but there is continuous communication between this central computerized system and what all of the drivers are doing that are on the surface streets. That's a good. That's a good image of what an assemblage is. Got it. Okay. And and what are what are some other? You know, I can imagine how uh, again a human technical assemblage might might apply in a number of different industries or in governance or, or in, uh, in, inside of individual businesses. Um, what else are, are examples of, of this assemblage as, as such? You'd mentioned the traffic example. What are a few other uh, you know, instances of, of this phenomena that, that you like to define? Well, for example, um, cell phone communication. So you have the infrastructure of cell phone towers and repeaters, satellite connections, and so forth, you also have people tapping into that system, leaving that system, talking to each other through that system. So it's a very complex human technical system that has rather ambiguous and fuzzy boundaries, and yet it's not merely an amorphous blob. The way that communication happens is very precisely controlled, not only by the uh, human use of those cell phones, but by all of the handshaking protocols, 
and all of the algorithms that underlie the infrastructure of that system. Got it. Okay, so cellular connections might be uh, another example, obviously. Uh, something and the that, biggest, the biggest yeah. example is no doubt the Internet. For sure. So you have people uh, signing on, you have people logging off, there's kind of a continuous flux and flow, and yet there are these very precise protocols determining how all that communication and traffic takes place. So it's, it's facilitated in a kind of platform that isn't necessarily dependent on a, an one individual person or one individual connection. It serves a lot of different needs. It can kind of grow or shrink or, uh, or, or serve any, any number of purposes as sort of its own, as you had mentioned, assemblage. I guess it would be probably the grand assemblage, at least as of now. Yes, exactly. And this, uh, this mode of connecting people, uh, you, could, you could use a term like network, which of course is ubiquitous in talking about the Internet, but a network doesn't apply so well to something like the automated traffic control system. It's not really a network as we think of the Internet as being a network. The technical part of it is a network, but how humans interact with it is uh, defined by different kinds of dynamics. And so that's why I like assemblage over a word like network, because it has more application and it it has this nice combination of a kind of looseness of boundaries combined with the preciseness of the way the communication channels work. No, I, I think I think that words are important in in, in uh, describing dynamics, and I think that when you talk network, uh, there are certain connotations um, and 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 boundaries you don't normally go beyond. But a word like assemblage might allow for those in terms of the the thinking about the dynamics of such systems. You had mentioned, and I wasn't familiar with the author. Uh, of a, a, a French thinker, it sounded like, who, who spoke of a, a thousand plateaus. I mean, I, I'm familiar with, uh, with the Rousseaus and the Montaignes. I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm not up to snuff on all the French intellectuals. Um, who was this fellow again, and what was that notion, just so we can understand the origin of this term you're using? Well, his name is Gilles Deleuze. He was the French philosopher, extremely influential in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century. His influence is still being thought. He, his closest um, collaborator was Felix Guattari, who was a psychoanalyst. And their basic idea was that um, capitalism fosters and in fact creates a kind of schizophrenia in the way that it alienates workers from their own inner essence. And they thought that the best way to, to combat the influences of capitalism was, were, was to abandon the entire conceptual nexus around which capitalism is structured. So they wanted to abandon the idea of a coherent subject they wanted to abandon the idea of an organism, and they wanted to abandon the idea of a sign system. So they were kind of writing against um, abstract conceptualization in general, and they wanted mm -hmm. to liberate a kind of flow of forces that were constantly changing, that would transgress boundaries, 
So everything in their view is in the process of becoming something else. For sure. So they talked about becoming animal or becoming insect. And the idea is that the notion of a coherent subject is an illusion. What we really are is a momentary concatenation of forces that is always subject to radical transition. So it was a complete kind of inversion of all the assumptions that make a system like capitalism work. And that the power of those ideas is still being played out very much now in cultural theory. And that's where uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't go so far as Deleuze went, but I understand how you could think in those terms when you think about human technical assemblages. Yes. Um, wow, curious. I mean, that sounds like a, an interesting combination of some Locke's notions of personhood and Lucretius on ever-evolving and Marx on the disassociation from man. and That's a, 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 rather, a rather complex bundle of ideas. But his, his notion of this assemblage of... Uh, did, did he talk about the human and the technical, or was it more of just sort of a human assemblage that he was referring to himself? Well, he was not trying to focus exclusively on humans, because to do so would imply the human subject is or should be the major focus of attention. He wanted to do away with that entirely. So he himself was something of a technophobe, and he didn't really carry these ideas into the technical realm. Mm, interesting. But now in this second generation of Deleuzean influences, there are people who are specifically trying to apply these ideas to digital media, for example, or to other life forms like insects. So uh, Parika has this uh, book on insect media, uh, think, thinking about swarms as a kind of form of human of technical assemblage, constantly subject to rearrangement. So you can see how something like the internet and its constant uh, rearrangements of packet switching and so forth sure. would lend itself somewhat to these ideas. For sure. Okay, so that's just interesting to glean a little bit about the origins of what you're speaking to. I think that uh, one, of, one of my favorite jobs at the Tech Emergence podcast is giving other folks interesting sources to look up and, and figuring out the origins of, of uh, interesting ideas or insightful ideas. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, Catherine, I'm interested in, in, you know, we'll talk about the present and then maybe a bit about the future. Uh, in terms of these assemblages today, um, are there any particular examples of assemblages that, that, that you see as um, maybe most exciting or influential uh, in, in you know, at, in the present moment, maybe assemblages that, that w wouldn't be completely obvious to most folks. We talked about the internet being a primary one. Are, are there other newer assemblages that, that are uh, bringing themselves about uh, that, that you think are worth making note on or, or might be worth some attention? Well, to give you an example of that, um, we can talk about the sociometer being developed by Alex Pentland at MIT Media Lab. And when we spoke before, I mentioned uh, research in neuroscience that has identified non-conscious cognition as 
performing functions essential to support and enable human consciousness. Yep. But non-conscious cognition in itself is inaccessible to consciousness. It performs all of these processes that underlay and make possible consciousness, yep. but itself cannot be reached through introspection. Yep. Well, Pentland's sociometer is based on the idea that human communication is consists mostly of what he calls honest signals. And these signals are honest because they're almost impossible to fake. And they have to do with things like voice intensity, emphasis, and so forth. It doesn't have to do with the abstract semantic content of communication, yep. but the signaling that goes on constantly and accompanies semantic communication. Yeah. And his argument is that this social signaling developed first in evolutionary terms. It's not unique to humans. No. It used, it's used throughout the animal kingdom. Yeah, anger and, and, and disgust and the facial expressions associated thereby. Right. And he developed this device which registers things like um, intensity of voice, duration of interactions, and so forth. And he argues that on videos with slices as thin as 30 seconds, he can predict the decisions that a group will reach. So the implication of this is that while human participants are immersed in their conscious uh, involvement with the ideas, they've already reached the decision that they're communicating to others through social signaling. Huh. And if you totally ignore the semantic content and you just focus on the honest signals, you can make very accurate predictions about what people are going to do. That's curious. So that's that's an example of how the functions carried on at by non-conscious cognition can now be opened out to visibility so that now if you're wearing a sociometer, you could consciously interpret and intercept those signals that are going on all the time non-consciously. So that's a device that allows and opening out into visibility of something that couldn't really be done that way before. Got it. And just to clarify, you had mentioned this. You you'd uh, now I'm familiar with the Media Lab because I've been there on a number of occasions and and actually covered some of their events at the uh, um, Dishbanda Center and, and, and other other uh, events in, inside the Media Lab. I'm actually unfamiliar with this particular research, which is curious because I might want to meet those folks. You said a, a sociometer. Yes. Sociometer. And it's being developed by Sandy Pentland. Sandy Pentland. And he Pentworth. has a book describing this research called Honest Signals. Honest Signals. Okay. Got it. Okay. And, and now do you see that as uh, contributing to this notion of an assemblage? And, and if so... How? Maybe would this imply everybody wearing one? Would this imply some people wearing one? Would this just imply its existence? How do you see this tying into the notion of a human technical assemblage? Well, there's always been this problem uh, with asking questions like, can machines think? And 
part of the problem here is that traditionally thinking has been associated with consciousness. Yes. And although machines can simulate consciousness, they, to my mind, have never achieved consciousness, although this is a perennial topic in yep. popular culture. For sure. But we'll just take as given that there are no conscious technical systems at present. Yep. And in my view, there are very unlikely to be conscious technical systems in anything like the near future. Okay. So that means that all of the cognitions that technical systems perform are performed without consciousness. Now, traditionally, that has made them seem very different from human cognition. But this recent research in neuroscience, which reveals the extent to which consciousness is dependent on non-conscious cognition for pre-processing all the information that streams into the brain from the rest of the body and from the exterior environment actually now has a very close analog with what technical systems do. So it moves the whole, whole discourse from can machines be conscious, which I think is kind of a dead end, yep. into a different arena, how do non-conscious cognitions as performed by machines and biological organisms interact? And in what ways do they interact? So that's why the sociometer is a good example, because it is about non-conscious cognition occurring in humans but being made visible through the intervention of technical cognition. Got it. Okay, okay. These are computational devices. They have algorithms that do complicated processing within them. So now you have technical non-conscious cognition and you have human non-conscious cognition interacting to, in, in Pentland's view, completely transform how we think about something like group dynamics. That, that's that's curious. So, so you see that as potentially contributing to this or fitting into this notion of a human technical assemblage because it allows us to uh, pick up on our interactions, maybe you know, in some kind of a similar way as we, you know, as, uh, are, are interacting in the traffic system, interacting via cell phones, interacting uh, via all the various sites in the internet. How, how about how we're interacting on a level below our own awareness? Can we bring that to some kind of awareness and be able to to interact to to, to uh, network maybe to to use that term potentially um, on a different plane or in a different level or through a different lens uh, by also integrating this other data set, which is which is uh, picking up on on the the non-conscious components of. Of, of human cognition does that fit like what what might an assemblage like that do maybe you know maybe every time a group was going to make a decision we'd slap a camera with a sociometer in there and uh we'd figure out what they were going to say before they said it what else might that imply how might that fit into this notion of, of an assemblage well in Penland's view one of the uses of a sociometer would be to improve group dynamics and keep groups who've gotten become dysfunctional, show them ways how to get out of their dysfunctionality. But I think the implications here are much broader than just this specific example. Yep. What the implications really are is <clears throat> the whole way in which 
humans interact with technical systems other than through consciousness. So Nigel Thrift, a British cultural geographer, talks about the technological unconscious. And what he means by that is the way in which our assumptions about how the world works are deeply structured by the kind of technical infrastructure with. And maybe they're so fundamental we don't even think about them as technical infrastructures. For example, if you are used to walking on concrete streets um, and asphalt, you would have a completely different set of assumptions about how the world works than an African tribesman who's only walked on grass and swamp. Yep. So, so the idea here is that our whole, whole bundle of unconscious and non-conscious assumptions have been formed, deeply formed, by the kinds of technical infrastructures we interact with. So, you know, I mentioned earlier cell phone communication as an example of a human technical assembly. Yep. Well, it's not just that uh, this is a human technical assemblage, it's that it's fundamentally transformed the way think people think about accessing information, about communicating with others, about the kind of information available to, to them when they're mobile and so forth. So these are now, for younger generations that have grown up with cell phones, these are just part of the way that the world works. Yep. But to someone with a different technical infrastructure, they would not be part of the way that the world works. They would be radically different views of how the world works. So the idea here is that human technical assemblages structure both immediately and covertly much of how human cultural life evolves. Curious, and, and clearly at, at levels that maybe to a great extent we are not remotely aware of. Exactly. Huh. That's exactly the point, and that's why it's, to my mind, very important to know about this recent work revealing the kinds of functions that non-conscious cognition performs in humans and also in other biological organisms. For sure. Getting, getting, uh, getting to know what we... What we don't know, we don't know, if you will, about our own nature, maybe. Yes, and one of the other implications of this, of thinking about cognition in a different way so that it's not solely identified with consciousness, is to begin to understand what I'm calling the planetary cognitive ecology. And this means recognizing that all biological life forms have cognitive capabilities at some level that allow them to interact with the environment, even plants, even unicellular Yeah, at, at the level of the cell, I was going to mention. I mean, it's hard to yeah. deny that. And so if you, if you identify thought only with consciousness, that means the only organisms on the planet who can contribute to that to be considered have to have consciousness in order to qualify. Yes. And then you get into arguments like, well, do dogs have consciousness? And some people think they don't, although to me it's obvious they do. But with this different view of cognition, 
you see cognition is happening everywhere, including among all animals, including among plants, including among microorganisms. And so you can really then begin to talk about a planetary cognitive ecology. And when you begin to think in those terms, it really changes your view of where humans as cognizers fit into that picture. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to, you know, the Baconian view of sort of us being the, the entities, you know, endowed with reason. Uh, so we are, we are the thinkers uh, and, and everything else maybe uh, is, is not, which, which, uh, which may be sort of a, an, an inaccurate view in, in many different respects. You know, it reminds me of a, an interview I did not all that long ago, maybe a year back actually, with a, a fellow where he spoke about how in, the, in older times maybe we were more connected to that quote-unquote uh, cognitive activity of the rest of nature, the changes and adjustments uh, and, and behaviors of the animals and plants around us and sort of their, their own kind of awareness. And now we've moved you know, into our nice buildings and our office buildings and our houses and we have our cities uh, where we're separated from that and sort of maybe safe from that in, in our own mind. But now with all of the technical systems around us, with our phones beeping and our refrigerators communicating with our microwaves and, and, uh, and, and the cell phones, as you had mentioned, the internet, the traffic systems, there's this whole new jungle of non-conscious uh, awareness that is now lighting up all around us. And so maybe uh, what you're speaking to in terms of the, the kind of cognition that isn't conscious um, will we'll end up uh, being registered on our Richter scale more often because even if we're safe and away from the jungle, it's going to be tough to deny uh, the, the, uh, the cognition, maybe not awareness, but the cognition uh, and, and the, the, the intelligence of all of these various beeping and booping jungle of machines that we're now surrounding ourselves with. Yeah, at one point, the only cognizers were biological organisms. Yep. Now we have very complex technical systems which also are cognizers. So the whole, um, the whole dynamics of the planetary cognitive ecology has shifted, has shifted dramatically. Not only that, but um, computational media in particular have invaded every other kind of technology. They've invaded water pumps. They've invaded sanitation yep. facilities. They've invaded travel technologies. And they've done that because of their cognitive capabilities. So this means that technical systems that have cognitive capabilities now are interacting with human cognitive capabilities on an unprecedented scale and intensity. Yeah, and, and at least in your perspective now, Catherine, just to, to wrap up on, on this note, because we normally talk a bit about uh, sort of the farther future, I think, I forget if it was Andreessen or Horowitz or both of them or who it was, but somebody had mentioned uh, this interesting notion of sort of software eating the world. Uh, which I think is rather curious, as you had mentioned, everything from from water pumps to traffic, etc. Uh, you know, either can or is or will be increasingly more efficiently, uh, you know, monitored by these systems that are, as you had mentioned, an interesting term, cognizers in, in some way, um, other than you know human beings, other than biological systems. Do you see as as we have so much more of this, like you had mentioned, you know, t you 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 use kind of taking over. Um, you know, that term 
as there's so much more and more and more and more of these systems evolving, do, do you see these at, at some point in further decades? It sounds like you, you don't see any of these systems becoming aware as being a relevant point for the coming decades. Um, do, do, you see our, do, you, do you see ourselves becoming overwhelmed or maybe made obsolete by, by many of these systems in, in the coming maybe two or three decades ahead? Or how do you see that transition uh, playing out? Looking at the future of these uh, assemblages, you know, will the machine be 98% of the importance thereof in, in the coming decades ahead? And what kind of influence might that have? Well, let me just make a minor correction here. Go for it. Uh, I do think there are systems, technical systems, which are aware. They're aware of their own state in the sense that they know what their subsystems are doing, their subsystems are reporting back to them, and so forth. Yep. They're aware they're not conscious. So I'm distinguishing here between consciousness and awareness. But okay, as to got the it. question, yep. where are we going, there is a clear trajectory here. So we could say that humans have dominated the planet in our ecological niche because of our superior cognitive abilities. Yep. We're not the strongest organism. We're not the fastest. Um, but what we are is... Uh, highly cognitive with very extensive cognitive abilities. Now we're creating technical systems which also have cognitive abilities and computational media are now playing a role in technical infrastructures equivalent to humans in planetary ecologies. So humans dominated other species by their superior cognition computational media are now infusing every other technology because of their computational, their cognitive abilities. Yep. So computational media have a special relationship with the quintessentially biological species, that is, homo sapiens. Yep. And so what we're now seeing is a very clear trajectory toward increasing technical autonomy. And in part, that's because the bottleneck on how fast, how extensive, how pervasive these cognitive communications can be, that the bottleneck is human consciousness. And so in order to overcome that bottleneck, you have to make the systems more autonomous. A good example of that is high-frequency trading algorithms that trade on the order of five milliseconds. Well, no human consciousness can operate in that temporal regime. Yeah, that's tough. So you have to cut humans out of the loop. Yep. And the high-frequency trading algorithms trade on their own. Certainly. Although, of course, they're designed by humans. Yep. But that's a good example of increasing technical autonomy. And I think we are going to see that more and more and more. And so it raises really uh, deep cultural and ethical questions about how far this technical autonomy should extend and in what circumstances. So a good example of where this issue has become urgent is the development of autonomous warfighters by people like Arkin at Georgia Tech, yep. who makes the argument that a robot warfighter could be more ethical than a human because you could program restraints into it. <laughs> well, that is subject to 
debate yeah, on, many, on many levels. Of course it is. But it's, it's illustrative of the kinds of problems that are going to arise with this tight connection between human and technical cognition and the trajectory toward increasing technical autonomy. Indeed. Catherine, I, I know we're, we're just about on time. I, I, I liked the, the illustration of that point. I also very much enjoyed this interview, not only for your, uh, your lexicon, which I, I felt was, was just uh, was used to, to great strength, but also because you've, you've referred to so many other great experts that now have given me more homework to do my own research, which I think is a lot of fun. That's one of the, one of the reasons I enjoy speaking with, you know, we talked to uh, investors, entrepreneurs, researchers, all kind of folks. One of the reasons I love talking to academics is because um, they're they're generally better than most. That instead of spouting off an opinion, uh, spouting off spouting something off not as a uh, their their hard belief uh, or or some kind of truth in the world, but spouting it off as a reference to some other research as a, a constantly building body of knowledge. And obviously, this notion of an assemblage is exactly. That Catherine, if, if people were interested in this talk and, and maybe interested in your work on where these assemblages are taking us for better or for worse, where would they go on the web to find you? I have a recent article in an academic journal called New Literary History. They'll find an article there on non-conscious cognition. And I have two more articles in Critical Inquiry on precisely this topic. Critical Inquiry. That's the that's the uh, the periodical that's a, a academic journal. Got it. Okay, very good. Catherine, thank you so much for being here on the Tech Emergence podcast today. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. Pleasure talking with you. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here, and remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.